0: Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Each week, we record the podcast during a Facebook Live broadcast in which Doc Snipes presents information and tools to help you start living happier. Our website, DocSnipes.com, has even more resources, videos, handouts, and workbooks to help you apply what we talk about. After each podcast, the accompanying video, text, and worksheets will be published from members on DocSnipes.com. Additionally, each week, we have a members-only educational group, followed by a question-and-answer session with Doc Snipes to help you apply the tools to yourself and start living happier faster. The Doc Snipes podcast will be providing listeners and members the same tools and information Dr. Snipes gives her clients. Go to DocSnipes.com to learn more. Welcome to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery, Assessment Identifying the Problem. What we're going to really talk about today is the fact that your mind and body are are interconnected. Unhappiness is caused by an imbalance of neurotransmitters. Now, we know that, which is why a lot of people automatically think, well, if I have an imbalance in neurotransmitters, let me just try taking some pill in order to increase some neurotransmitter, which in theory might work. But we don't know exactly which neurotransmitter is out of whack, or why. It may not be that your body's not making enough of something. It may be that the receptors aren't receiving the messages like they should. And there are a variety of reasons for that. Most of them very benign, like not getting enough sleep, having poor nutrition, yada yada. So we're going to talk about some of those things today, and help you identify kind of what's going on for you, and what might be triggering it for you as opposed to maybe your neighbor. Um, What causes this imbalance in neurotransmitters really varies greatly between people. For example, when I don't get enough quality sleep, I have this cascade of negative things, and I'm just a cranky grump to be around. Other people can do without um, quality sleep, for a couple of days or even a week before they start really noticing significant impacts in their mood and how things are going and their ability to concentrate. So, you know, what causes irritability for me will differ than what causes it for you. It's important to remember, though, that there's often a physical health component that needs to be addressed for recovery to be successful. Think about unhappiness, kind of like a leak in a water main. And if you have a leak in a water main, the water pressure goes down and all the citizens are unhappy. Okay, so in order to compensate for that, you've got two options. Number one, you can increase the water pressure so everybody has water pressure restored, but the leak is still there. Now, think about it. What happens when you increase water pressure and there's a leak? The leak gets bigger over time and you either have to keep increasing the water pressure or fix the leak. So what we're talking about is when you start taking antidepressants or some other kind of psychotropic medication, many times that's akin to turning up the water pressure. The leak is still there. Whatever is causing that imbalance is still there. So we need to figure out what that is. And again, for a lot of people, I don't want you to freak out because it's really usually something pretty simple and it's often related to lifestyle and nutritional factors and things like that. Over the next you know, little while, 30 minutes or so maybe, we're going to define the purpose of assessment. When you go see a mental health counselor or even a physician, the first thing they do is an assessment. They ask you a bunch of questions. So we're going to look at why is that important and what can somebody gain from an assessment, aside from just knowing what your symptoms are, and how can they put together an individualized picture for you, and how can you put together an individualized picture for you. We'll explore the steps in assessment, because it's really not brain surgery, and learn about the first steps in moving forward toward happiness for you. So assessment is really designed to identify symptoms. When somebody comes into my office for an assessment, I ask them, what brings you here today? And they'll generally tell me, I'm depressed, I'm crying all the time, I'm anxious, I just I worry constantly. And I'm like, okay, so that gives me an idea about kind of where we're starting. Then we'll talk about the course of symptoms. When did it start? Is this something that started three weeks ago when you lost your job? Or is this something that you've been struggling with on and off since you were knee high to a grasshopper? Gives me an entirely different picture of some things that may be causing it. We'll talk about exacerbating and mitigating factors. Big words, just because I don't like typing out, we'll talk about the things that make it worse and the things that make it better, because um, it's a lot more typing for me. But exacerbating factors make symptoms worse, and mitigating factors either prevent them or make them better. So if you worry a lot, what makes your worry worse? Too much caffeine, not getting enough sleep, being around certain people who are really negative, um, dwelling on the worry. There are a lot of things that we do that we can, can make our worry worse. But what also helps? What makes your worry go away or at least what helps you forget about it for a little while? These are the mitigating factors. These are things you already have in your toolbox that we're going to start talking about strengthening because if it works for you, then let's keep working. Uh, We're also going to learn new tools as the podcast goes on, but let's focus on what you already have instead of starting out with reinventing the wheel, which never really is productive. Well, to determine the impact of symptoms, okay, so you worry all the time. We know what makes it worse, what makes it better, but when you're worrying all the time, what is the impact of symptoms on your life, on your relationships, on your ability to sleep, on your energy levels, and all that stuff? And we'll start looking at the multifaceted impact that a simple symptom like worry. Can have on your life and your relationships so people can start to see number one why it's important to address but number two multiple different avenues to address it and then we'll work on identifying change goals what does not having this symptom look like to you we're not just going to take it away and leave you in a vacuum so if you're not worrying all the time when something stressful comes up what are you going to do instead these are your change goals and How is that new way of acting going to impact your life, your relationships, your energy levels, your ability to sleep, yada, yada, yada? And I think you can start brainstorming right now the fact that, you know, choosing not to worry and do something different that is helpful is going to help you sleep better and create a whole lot of really ideal things. And then finally, we'll to start talking about, and I emphasize start talking about developing an action plan based on your identified goals. And those goals are probably going to be numerous. So we're only going to pick one or two, and we're going to say, let's start working on changing those, because we know that if you start a positive change in any one area of your life, every other area is going to improve. Likewise, if you make some bad changes in one area of your life, every other area is going to kind of go downhill. So we want to increase the happiness, increase your body and brain's availability of neurochemicals and your ability to be happy and healthy. So the first step is to identify the problem. What's wrong? And it's it's not magic. It's not brain surgery. We're not asking a super leading question to get to some super secret squirrel answer. I just want to know what's wrong. What brings you here today? And... What's your solution? What does it look like? You know, what do you think might work to help you not feel this way? Because you've lived in your body for a whole lot longer than I've known you. You know, I've known you for maybe five minutes. You've lived in your body for 20, 40, 50 years. So you know what works for you. You also know what causes the problem in general. Now, we talked about those exacerbating factors, but there are also things that trigger it. Um, what causes you to worry? What things do you worry about? And those are things we're going to look at figuring out how to address so when they come up, you have alternate tools to deal with them. Um, And then we'll learn about uh, what causes the problem specifically for you. So a lot of people worry about losing their job. A lot of people worry about their finances. A lot of people worry about various stuff. But it doesn't mean you worry about all of those things, or it doesn't mean that all of those things cause depression for you. So we want to look at specifically, you know, what are the top three or five things that causes your symptom for you? Then we'll move on to learning about possible solutions. All right, you've got the symptom. We know what causes it. We know what makes it worse. We know what's helped make it better in the past. So building on that, what do you think is the next possible step you can take? in order to either start doing those things that mitigate it, you know, start using your strengths, or start stopping your exposure to whatever's causing this problem. How can you back away from some of these triggers for a little while until you kind of get your land legs? Well, identify the solutions that are going to work for you. Once you've brainstormed and put them kind of all on the whiteboard or all on a piece of paper, identify two or three that you say, you know what, I think I want to try this whether it's mindfulness or journaling or exercising or getting better sleep, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff. You'll start identifying what you're going to start doing today. There's no reason to talk about a whole bunch of stuff and theorize and then say, okay, in a week or so we might start. No, I want you to identify something you're going to start doing today to improve your happiness and figure out how to implement those solutions. So the presenting problem, you know, what are your symptoms? So if Jane walked into the office and she said, I'm depressed, I would say, how do you know you're depressed? What is it that makes you think you're depressed? What are your symptoms? And this is what we call as evidenced by, because what means depression to Jane may be very different than what means depression to Sally, because depression doesn't present the same for every single person. So first I need to know what I'm dealing with, or you need to know what you're dealing with. What are the symptoms? that you are lumping together to say, I'm depressed or I'm anxious. How long has each symptom been going on? Now this is important because for example, sleep, and you're gonna hear me talk about sleep a lot, every week probably, but sleep deprivation, lack of quality sleep has a cascade effect on your body, which can lead to higher anxiety, increased depression, and all kinds of other icky stuff. So if your sleep problems have been going on longer than anything else, then that might tell me, hmm, that's been going on the longest. I wonder what would happen if we started looking at that, because that might be causing some of this anxiety and depression. Now, it doesn't fix everything. By no means am I saying, get a good night's sleep and you're going to wake up happy. No. Um, Number one, because that sleep deprivation has been going on for a long time. So one or two or 15 nights of good sleep is not going to necessarily undo all that. But when you're sleep deprived and you're irritable and you're foggy headed and you have difficulty concentrating and you're fatigued, it impacts your mood. It impacts how you interact with other people. So it changes your environment because people don't want to be around you when you're a cranky pants. Uh, So we're going to look at what are the effects of that. We'll look at what makes each symptom not the whole thing, not depression, but each symptom worse. What makes each symptom better? So for sleep, and that one's an easy for one for me to pick on if you're drinking caffeine up until twenty minutes before you go to bed, it's going to impact the quality of sleep. if you're taking antihistamines or even certain prescription medications it's likely going to have some sort of an impact on your sleep. So it's important to understand what medications you're taking, how they may impact your sleep, and talk with your doctor maybe about taking the medication in the morning or maybe five hours before bed instead of right at bedtime if it's something that's going to negatively impact the quality of your sleep. And then we're going to look at the consequences, again, not of the big thing, depression or anxiety, but of each symptom. When you're sleep-deprived, how does it affect you? When you're not eating a good diet, how does it affect you? When you are, wake up and you are just in a god-awful cranky mood, how does that affect you? And how does that affect everything around you? So you can start seeing and identifying, all right, this particular symptom here has a whole lot more negative consequences, so I think I might want to start working on that first. And then we're going to talk in depth, if you are in an assessment with me, about what, what does happiness look like? Happiness is obviously the absence of unhappiness, so what's going to be different? How are you going to feel different emotionally? And you're like, well, duh, I'm going to be happy, but there are a lot of other emotions that go along with it. When you're depressed, not only can you not, you know, get angry or anxious or anything anymore. You just don't care. But you also can't get excited anymore because those neurotransmitters that help you get excited are out of whack. They're out of balance. So emotionally, when you're happy, you're going to be able to get excited. You may be more patient. I know when I'm any of those unhappy feelings, I'm really irritable and impatient. So you may be more patient, you may be more tolerant, you may be more compassionate, not only with others, but with yourself. So think about all the different things that happen when you are in that state of mind where you are happy and content and you're like, okay, you know, I may not be sitting on top of the world, but life is good today. I woke up on this side of the dirt, sun is shining, we're doing good. Mentally, what's going to be different? And I struggle with what word to use here mentally, cognitively, thought-wise. When we talk about mental effects, what we're really talking about is your ability to concentrate and whether you're looking at the world through a negative Nelly lens or a rose-colored glasses lens or just something that's kind of in between. We've all had that morning when we've gotten up late, on the wrong side of the bed, we're kind of achy, we slept the wrong way, you just get up and you're in a negative mood. When you're in a negative mood, you tend to persist through the rest of the day, seeing things kind of cranky and through a negative lens. When you wake up and you're in a good mood, the sun is shining, you can smell spring in the air, the birds are chirping, the things that you wouldn't notice when you're negative, you don't pay as much attention to because you're so attuned to the happy stuff that's going on. And our brain is kind of cool that way that when you get into a certain state of mind it selectively filters what you're paying attention to so if you're happy what things are going to be different that you're paying attention to and how much different will that feel physically what's going to be different when you're happy you know i know when i'm depressed or angry or unhappy My stomach gets upset, I get achy, I get fatigued, I don't have any energy to do anything, I'm kind of bleh. Um, And I use that clinical term a lot, bleh, so just get used to it. Anyhow, physically when you're happy, most people find that they have more energy, they're sleeping better, you know, maybe they're not wanting to eat the best diet in the world, but that's okay. All I really am going to ever talk about is eating a reasonably healthy diet. Nothing too crazy out there. Um, But generally, you're not craving high-fat, high-carbohydrate foods for comfort or to support that chronic stress for that long-haul fight or flight. You're more interested in other types of foods. You're actually um, enthusiastic. You can have energy to go do different things that you enjoy, which takes us down to socially. When you're happy, what's going to be different? Will your self-esteem improve? Or maybe you've got good self-esteem right now and you're just, you're worried all the time. That, you know, that's okay too. Um, it's a matter of what symptoms you have. How will being happier impact your relationships? You know, are people going to want to go around you? Are you going to want to spend more time around people? When I'm unhappy, I don't want to spend a lot of time around people. I'm just like, leave me alone. <laughs> I just, I don't have the energy, don't have the time. But when I'm happy, I love being around people. So how does it impact your relationships when you're happy versus when you're unhappy? And recreation. Again, when I'm unhappy, I don't have the energy to do the basic stuff, let alone go out and work in the garden or do those activities that normally I would find really enjoyable. So those activities go by the wayside and I end up spending a large part of the day sort of on autopilot, just waking up, eating, going to work, coming home, eating, going to bed. And not doing much else, and that's not how we're programmed to operate. And finally, environmentally, when you're happy, what's your environment going to look like? When I'm happy, I tend to clean more. I have more energy, so I walk around and I putter and I straighten things. When I'm in an unhappy frame of mind, no, not so much. I, I sit on the couch, pull the pull the uh, blanket up over my legs, and I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I'll pick that up the next time I get up to get something from the kitchen. Not saying that how you—that's how you should be. I'm just saying that when I'm in an unhappy frame of mind, I don't have the energy to putter. I don't have the energy to look around the room and go, "What can I do to decorate for the season, um, or whatever?" And a lot of people love to decorate, which is not my favorite thing. And I can tell you, I need to be in a really energetic mood in order to do that. The other thing I ask people, which kind of surprises them. Is what's going to be the same when you're happy because you know what my bet is that there are some things that are going okay for you not great maybe not fabulous maybe but there are they are good and you don't want them to change so what's going to be the same these are the things that are starting to build our foundation they're the blocks that have already been laid that we're going to fill in and build up upon as you start recreating um, your sense of happiness and health the transactional model says the way that you feel emotionally or physically impacts how you interact with others. Think about the last time you woke up and you had a migraine. You're just in a lot of pain. Did it affect how you interacted with others? My guess is yeah. Um, most people, even if it's chronic back pain or chronic neck pain or chronic any kind of pain, makes a lot of people cranky. Um, and it makes it harder to be patient and deal with other people because your brain Senses pain as a threat when your brain senses a threat it sets off the threat alert system So you're already kind of wound up and prepared for fight-or-flight because your brain goes you're you're kind of You're that sick antelope in the herd right now. You're vulnerable. So I'm going to make sure that you're On alert and I'm going to keep you sort of revved up and hyper vigilant That way you can't be surprised and you can't be hurt so you're hypervigilant, which means you're edgy and you're jumpy and you're irritable. So how do you think you interact with others when they walk in and they go, hey, how's it going? You know, I have this other project that I need you to look at today. And you're just like, really? One more thing. Uh, being aware. When you act that way, how does it impact them? They're either going to take their project and back out of the door very slowly. Sorry and not want to go back in again, which means you're left alone. Or they may come back at you with an attitude, which just compounds the situation. Either way, it's not ideal for healthy social relationships. When you are feeling, let's stay with good, because that's just so much happier. When you're feeling good emotionally and physically, your stress response tends to be lower. So when you're unhappy or feeling unpleasant, you're already up here. You're kind of like a pressure cooker, and it's about ready to start blowing off steam. It's going to blow the top if anything else happens. And when something else happens, poof, guess what? Um, When you are happy, there's no pressure in that pressure cooker, or very little. So you can turn the heat up quite a bit before you start getting to that point where the top's ready to blow off. So you have a much greater tolerance for stress. Your attitude tends to be more positive. If you're feeling happier and your ability to concentrate, which goes along with some of those neurochemicals that are responsible for helping you get excited, both of those are increased when you're happy and depending on the person, the way you feel emotionally or physically may or may not impact your environment. Each one of those things, how you interact with others, how you're responding to stress, your ability to concentrate and your environment impacts how you feel. So you can see how it's this reciprocal thing. If you lash out and you push people away, that is going to cause them to affect, uh, react negatively to you, which will cause you to react even more negatively to them, and it's this downward spiral. So let's do the positive. React positively and encourage an upward spiral. So what are the causes of all these symptoms? And we haven't even really started to look at symptoms yet. That's two or three modules away. Um, physical. Sleep deprivation. See, I told you I was going to talk about that a lot. When you are sleep deprived, your body cannot restore and rebalance. It can't spend the time getting the neurotransmitters back to where they should be and letting your body have some downtime to repair. So if your body's not repaired, it's kind of like taking a car out onto the interstate knowing good and well that you've got a terrible oil leak. you're going to be stressed. You're going to know that there could be a negative cascade at any point in time. So your body sends out that all hands on deck stress response system. When that's activated, all kinds of stuff happens. It keeps you from sleeping well. It makes you want to eat junk food. Um, And it sends out signals that, you know what? There's too much stress going on right now. I'm fatigued. I need to focus on the basics. So we're not going to produce those sex hormones right now. So libido goes down. But when sex hormones aren't produced, the other side effect is that you don't have as much serotonin, which is one of your main feel-good chemicals circulating because the availability of your sex hormones and the availability of serotonin are really closely linked. So there's a lot of stuff that happens if you're not getting good sleep. And some of you are probably going, oh, I want to take a nap right now. (laughs) And, you know, getting good sleep is, is always a great place to start poor nutrition. Your body makes the neurochemicals in your brain and the hormones throughout your body with the proteins you eat. So if you're not eating good food, you're not giving your body the building blocks. It's trying it's like trying to build a city out of Legos and you've only got those little six spot Legos. You don't have any of the smaller ones. You don't have any of the weird shaped ones. You just have one kind of Lego and it makes it a lot harder for you to build your city. So you need to make sure that you're getting adequate nutrition. Try to have three colors on your plate at each meal. That's not unreasonable. I'm not asking you to count anything. You know, that what you eat and how much you eat and calories and all that stuff is between you and a nutritionist or your physician. But the challenge for healthy eating is to try to eat colorfully. Pain and illness When you're in pain or when you're sick, think about the last time you had the flu. Um, That's been going around here a lot lately. It can make you feel really grumpy. It can make you feel fatigued. It can make it harder to concentrate. I know when I have a sinus infection, I cannot remember my own name most of the time. And it makes it harder to sleep, which takes us back to that sleep deprivation thing. Because you know you don't sleep well when your nose is running and you're sleeping in the easy chair and taking decongestants every four hours. So you should expect that your mood is probably going to take a hit. You're not going to be the happiest sick person. That's okay. Knowing that when you start getting healthier and you can breathe again and you can sleep well again, your mood will return. Then during that period when you're ill, give yourself a break. Say, you know what? I'm not on my A game and that's okay. I'm here. Sunlight. This is another easy one. We need sunlight every day to help set our circadian rhythms. We need sunlight to produce vitamin D Which is also responsible for depression Um, It's one of those vitamins that they know is really strongly implicated. They just don't know how in um, Depression and anxiety management. So you need sunlight now. We're not talking about going and bathing in the Sun every single day you know ten or fifteen minutes of sunlight a day is really all that you need, and most people get that going to and from their car and you know maybe sitting out on the porch and drinking their coffee in the morning or something. Sunlight helps you set your circadian rhythms though, and circadian rhythms are your sleep, eat, wake cycle, or yeah, it tells you when your circadian rhythms are going right, your cortisol levels that cause you some stress. tell you to get out of bed in the morning that help you get motivated those go up and down like they're supposed to during the day but then your body knows that based on darkness it's time to start making melatonin so it's time to start going to sleep think about the winter i used to work in the center of a building i had no windows so i would go to work it would be dark i would work in my office all day long where i didn't see the sun i would leave work and it would be dark And I would wonder why I would have difficulty sleeping and not know I was hungry all the time. I didn't know when I was supposed to eat, didn't know when I was supposed to sleep because my body was going, is it nighttime or is it daytime? So getting that sunlight is important. If you can't get sunlight, you know, maybe you're, you live in Alaska or you live in a place where it's cloudy and rainy for weeks on end. Consider um, some light therapy and There's some information in the text on the Doc Snipes website that talks about the importance of getting good light therapy, not necessarily the most expensive, but making sure the bulbs that you're using are of a sufficient intensity. A 60-watt bulb ain't going to cut it. You know, even the bright bright lights that you have at work are not going to do it. There's a certain setup that you need to have, which you can do pretty cheaply. Um, It's just a matter of being aware. And finally, exercise. Exercise can help you because a body in motion tends to stay in motion and a body at rest tends to stay at rest. When you don't move for a long time, you start to get achy, you start to get stiff, you start to lose muscle tone, which causes all kinds of other pain problems, which makes it harder to, guess what, sleep. And if you're not exercising, you're not burning calories, so you may be putting on weight, which adds to the stresses on your body and some pain. So all these things are very, very basic when we're talking about improving the mind-body connection. Get good sleep. Eat a reasonable diet. Address pain and illness issues. And on those days where where you're in pain or you're sick, cut yourself some slack. Get sunlight whenever possible. And if you can't get it for extended periods, consider light therapy. And exercise. And that doesn't mean going to the gym and running 10 miles that means going out in the yard and playing with fido or cleaning the house or doing anything with movement it doesn't ha- mean that you have to get your heart in training zone if you haven't been doing that for 20 years age many physiological changes even though we don't want to admit it take place as a result of age so when i work with a client and i ask them you know how old are you that helps me get an understand an understanding of what might be going on in their body as far as hormone changes um, and that includes levels of sex hormones as well as things like cortisol which might be causing some of their symptoms additionally younger people have fewer experiences against to which to judge current experiences now if you have teenagers at home or if you remember being a teenager what seemed like the end of the world when you were 16 You'd probably experience now and be like, whatever, they'll forget about that in a week. But as a 16-year-old, with all the experiences that a 16-year-old has, it does seem like the end of the world. So understanding somebody's age, and I can obviously usually pick that up the minute they walk in and I look at them and I can go, okay, you're a young one. So you probably don't have all the life experiences of a 60-year-old and cultural and environment changes for people of different ages people who were raised during my grandmother's time would never dream of going to group therapy and airing their dirty laundry people from my generation it was kind of cool and a fad to go to therapy so they're all about it so you need to look at um, what's going on in the current generation that that patient has been raised in what are their values what's important to them and What techniques and tools do they believe will work? You know, what we believed, um, I mean, think back into the 1800s, the approach to psychology was very, very different. So somebody from, you know, way back then, obviously they're not alive now, but would look at our modern psychology and go, that isn't going to work. Likewise, we look backwards and we go, yeah, not sure how that helped anybody. So we want to take into account the impact of somebody's culture and environment on their mood. You know, what is devastating, depressing, anxiety-provoking for someone who was born in 1970 is going to be very different probably than for someone who was born in 2000. Social. Your immediate family can be your best buffer or can be your worst drain as far as making your symptoms worse. So we want to look at the immediate family. And that's anybody you interact with on a daily basis, you know, that you would consider calling at 2 in the morning and going, hey, I've got a problem, or who might call you at 2 in the morning. Uh, That's your immediate family. I don't necessarily define define family in terms of blood. So let's look at that immediate family, see what they've got going on, because you learned a lot of your coping skills from those people. So let's look at the good, the bad, and the ugly and figure out what's going on. Social supports, and going back to immediate family and also social supports, when you find strengths, capitalize on those. Say, yes, I want to enhance my relationship with that person because they're really supportive and I feel better when I'm around them. The same thing with social supports. Effective, healthy social supports have good boundaries. It's a give and take, not just a, Take, 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 or give, give, give. And there's effective communication. It's not, you don't feel like you're pulling your hair out when you're trying to tell a good social support how you feel. You also want to look at social stressors. You know, what else is going on in your life? Maybe you have social anxiety. So going out in front of a large group of people might stress you the heck out. Okay, that's fine. Unless you're a public speaker by by trade or maybe a teacher or Something like that. So is there something related to interacting with other people that's adding to your stress? And finally, self-esteem. I put that in social because it's your relationship with yourself. I find that the majority of the patients that I've ever worked with have low self-esteem. And that is a cause, a direct cause, of a lot of their anxiety and depression because they so are afraid of rejection. If somebody rejects them, it's taken so personally Because they are unable or feel unworthy of validating their self and going, I am all that in a bag of chips. And if you can't see it, tough tiddlywinks. That's my favorite line. Anyhow, (laughs) I want to help people improve their self-esteem. But if your self-esteem is low, if you don't feel good about yourself, then you may be a lot more stressed by other people's behavior. And one thing in the world we cannot change is other people. Environment. Yeah, we're still assessing all the different causes. What things in the environment add to your stress or make you feel exhausted and fatigued? Some people love to be in an active environment um, around other people. Um, I draw energy from other people. So I love being in a situation where there's, you know, a lot of activity most of the time. Um. Other people prefer situations that are more calm and peaceful because having constant activity and people walking around you and dogs barking and this and that, it just makes them stress out. So think about your daily environment. What do you prefer and what is your daily environment like? If it's not in line, if they're not one and the same, figure out how to make it so. If you've got four kids, five dogs, and a, a chicken running around the house, um, that's kind of our house. <laughs> and you like it calm and peaceful I suggest you install a really good lock on the bathroom door so you at least have one room you can go into and get some sanity figure out how to make one sanctuary if you will that is environmentally supportive of what you need if you need that activity then figure out how to involve that in your day you know so you don't feel like you're trapped and isolated It may just be going to the library or for me, it's going to the gym. I love going to the gym and being around people who are like-minded in the health and fitness sort of way. So what is it you can do every day in order to have a relaxing moment or hour? Is your environment supportive of sleep or do you have my rooster crows every morning at 345? As when he starts crowing. He doesn't stop until the sun comes up. So if I didn't get up that early, it would not be supportive of my sleep. When I lived in apartments, you know, I go to sleep early when my neighbors would be staying up until 11 or 12 at night. That wasn't supportive of sleep. So how can you make your environment supportive of sleep? Two of the first suggestions, blindfold and earplugs. Um, and making sure, and I don't do it, I should, uh, but I don't. To get Fido out of the room, because if your dog starts waking you up, licking his paw at two o'clock in the morning, that again is not supportive of sleep. And is your environment supportive of relaxation? And that doesn't just mean sleep. That means when you get into this environment, do you go, Cool, I'm home, Or do you walk into the into your house and go, Oh, crap, there is just so much to do around here. <laughs> so if it's not supportive of relaxation, part of it may be changing the environment maybe asking people to pitch in to help get things cleaned up. And part of it may be changing the way you look at the environment. And instead of focusing so much on everything has to be super neat and tidy and white glove clean, you walk in and you go, you know, this is tolerable and this is okay. This is not worth me getting all wound up because there's stuff on the counter. And emotions, anger, and anxiety are both reactions to threats it's your fight-or-flight response well you can only be angry or anxious for so long before your body goes you know what i ain't gonna win and there's no sense continuing to fight when i'm not gonna win which leads us to depression depression is kind of when you're out of gas and your body goes it's not worth continuing the fight so they're all interrelated if you're depressed we want to look and say what was the anger or anxiety or situation that drained all your energy and made your body just kind of throw up its hands and go, I surrender. If you're angry or anxious and you haven't gotten to depression yet, well, cool beans. But we need to figure out what's causing it and address it. And if you're happy, of course, we want to look and say, what is it that makes you happy? Because we're going to do more, than that, more of that. You can't be happy and miserable at the same time. So do more things that make you happy. It'll give you less time to be engaged in some of the things you can get rid of that make you unhappy. And you want to focus also on thought triggers for each emotion. What things do you tell yourself? And you need to listen to that internal critic because it's probably pretty rude. What things do you tell yourself on a daily basis that contribute to your anger, anxiety or depression? You can just you can spend 20 or 30 minutes just thinking about that. What kinds of things do I tell myself that that support those negative emotions? When you get stressed out about something, you know maybe something goes wrong at work and you get really angry stop and ask yourself what thoughts am i having that are fueling my anger and how can i deal with those so your symptom assessment is really pretty easy thankfully what you want to look at for each symptom and we're going to start with sleep again because that's the easiest what makes the symptom worse what behaviors make your sleep worse what thoughts make it harder to sleep? What goes on in the environment that makes it harder to sleep? Because those are all things that you're going to need to address. Probably all of them. Maybe once you address a few of them, some of the others will go away. But that gives you an idea where to start. Even if you just address the environment that makes it harder to sleep, that's making some big strides towards getting better sleep. So cool. Don't expect to change everything overnight. Make one or two changes. What makes the symptom better? What helps you sleep? What behaviors do you do that help you sleep? For me, I know if I exercise in the morning, I sleep better at night. So that's one of mine. What thoughts help you sleep? Sometimes guided imagery, you know, going somewhere in your mind to a relaxing place to, you know, think about this upcoming vacation that you've got. Positive thoughts, saying your rosary, whatever it is, whatever thoughts you can have that kind of quiet the anxiety and the anger and anything else that's going on and help you sleep and drift off? And what can you do in your environment? What things in the environment help you sleep? Maybe aromatherapy, maybe a temperature. Um, Maybe you do sleep better if you've got Fido in the bed as a body pillow. Um, I know I do sometimes, but (laughs) it's up to you what helps your symptoms. And then you, again, you want to look at the impact of each symptom. So what is the impact of not getting enough sleep on your behavior throughout the rest of the day? Probably slows you down. It makes it harder to concentrate. You're less efficient. How does not getting enough sleep impact your thoughts throughout the rest of the day? Are you more negative? Are you more impatient? Maybe. And how does not getting enough sleep impact your environment throughout the rest of the day? Even at work, when I'm better rested, my desk is cleaner. When I'm exhausted, it kind of, you know, the outside reflects the inside. So if you come in and it looks like a tornado hit my office, you know, I'm probably exhausted. Um, So think about how just a simple symptom impacts each area of your life. But also think about, you know, go back and say, if I'm not sleep deprived, if I'm getting plenty of sleep, how's it going to impact my behavior? If I am getting plenty of sleep, how are my thoughts different? And how are things more optimistic and focused and creative and whatever? And if I'm getting enough sleep, what's the effect on my environment? And environment can be not only tangible things, but also the people. Because I know when I get enough sleep, I tend to be more patient and compassionate and kind. And so I'm nicer to other people, (laughs) which in turn usually means they're reciprocally nicer to me. So one symptom that, you know, I'll share with you, uh, I guess it's been almost two years now. I had what they call a cardiac episode. Um, So now when I have some of those symptoms, um, I've I've named him Lenny. It feels like an elephant sitting on my chest. And it's not agonizing, but it it feels like something really heavy sitting on my chest, which kind of freaks me out because I don't want to have another episode. So I look at what behaviors do I do? that make the symptom worse because I don't want to feel like that because it makes me anxious, it makes me irritable, and makes me fatigued and all kinds of other stuff. Too much caffeine, not getting enough sleep, or working out too hard and getting overtrained. Um, I have to make this stop. I'm overwhelmed. I can't breathe. Oh, crap. I'm having another cardiac episode. All of those make it worse because I'm creating a panic attack. I am talking myself into being totally freaked out. When in reality, it's probably just a passing feeling. Um, Environments that make Lenny show up or make it worse, if it's a chaotic environment and I'm already stressed out, I tend to have a much stronger startle response. So, you know, I jump through the roof, which makes my heart start pounding. And if I've already got Lenny sitting on it and it starts pounding, it just feels awful. So again, it freaks me out and I can talk myself into a panic attack. So then I say, all right, I know what causes it or, you know, what makes it worse. What makes it better? And I need to do these things each day or at least some of these things. When I start having, noticing that Lenny's there, what thoughts can I have that will help me get rid of Lenny? Um, And you can tell Lenny comes around kind of often or I wouldn't have already named him. And what can I do in my environment that helps me feel less stressed, which makes Lenny take a hike? Like I said, I want to look at what are the Im- what's the impact of when Lenny's on my chest because I know it's, there's a negative impact. But to keep with the chart and fill it out all the way, I want to look at what behaviors, um, how Lenny having Lenny around affects my behavior. I'm afraid to work out because I don't know if my heart rate's going to drop down to you know, the low 30s or 20s again, and that freaks me out. Even though I know that most of the time, if I work out moderately, it makes me feel better. I get lethargic if I'm not working out and I'm stressed out all the time. I'm not sleeping well. I'm getting lethargic. What happens to my thoughts? I have an increased sense of helplessness because I'm like, I can't get rid of this. Um, And then I get on my own little pity pot for a little while, which doesn't help. It doesn't help anything in my life when I'm sitting on my own pity pot. And I tend to withdraw from other people um, because of the stress and the fatigue and every all the other impacts. I'm just not pleasant to be around, and I don't have the desire to be around other people. And that's not me. That's not what happiness looks like for me. So in order to live happy, I choose the behaviors that are going to help me send Lenny back to the circus. So the next step for you is to work on becoming mindful of your symptom triggers throughout the week. Do a mindfulness scan prior to each meal. And I say each meal because everybody eats. And this helps you anchor it instead of trying to remember to do it at 2 o'clock or something weird. Before each meal, just stop for a second and go, how do I feel emotionally? What are my thoughts like? Am I negative? Am Am I irritable? Am I impatient? And how do I feel physically? What do I need physically? Am I tired? Am I energetic? Am I in pain? Am I feeling pretty darn good? What's going on? Start focusing and becoming aware of how you feel, and it will change throughout the day, and that's okay. The key is to start becoming aware of it so as it changes, you can change with it. The assessment is really the beginning point for any sort of change. It helps you get a clearer idea of what might be causing your symptoms and making them worse and what you can do to make them better. Proper nutrition, adequate quality sleep, and pain management are all necessary for happiness. I'll say that again, proper nutrition, adequate sleep and pain management are all necessary for happiness. At this stage, you're starting to envision what happiness looks like for you. So identify what things this week are a good use of your energy. Is worrying about something in the news a good use of your energy? Is that helping you be happy and achieve your goals? Is worrying about it doing anything except for making you miserable? So identify those things that are good uses of that energy, and choose those behaviors. And identify those things that are draining your energy, and ex- start exploring how to deal with them. If social media drains your energy, consider staying off social media for a week and seeing how you feel. I'm not saying forever. I'm saying give it a trial run. Um, if worrying or you know, s- stressing about something is draining your energy. Figure out what the next step is to start dealing with it. Related videos in the Doc Snipe series that you may want to look at as they are made understanding symptoms, the mind body connection, mindfulness, motivation, goal setting, sleep and happiness, nutrition and happiness, emotion regulation, distress tolerance. The Act Matrix, and finally, Interpersonal Effectiveness Skills. And these will all be upcoming podcasts in the next couple of months. If you like this podcast, we would love you to subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play. You can join our Facebook group. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or you can join our community access and additional resources at DocSnipes.com. Thanks for tuning in to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Our mission is to make practical tools for living the happiest life of, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to Happiness Isn't Brain Surgery with Doc Snipes. Our mission is to make practical tools for living the happiest life affordable and accessible to everyone. We record the podcast during a Facebook Live broadcast each week. Join us free at DocSnipes.com slash Facebook. Remember our website, DocSnipes.com, has even more resources members-only videos, handouts, and workbooks to help you apply what we talk about. New resources are added weekly. During the first half of 2017, we're offering introductory memberships. Lock in the introductory rate of $5 per month for the Happiness Basic membership, which includes all texts, videos, and worksheets, or $14.99 per month for the Happiness Plus membership, which includes everything from the Basic membership, Plus, access to the weekly members-only educational groups and question-and-answer sessions with Doc Snipes, designed to help you start living happier, faster. If you like this podcast and want to support the work we're doing, for as little as $3.99 per month, you can become a supporter at DocSnipes.com join. Again, thank you for joining us, and let us know how we can help you.